going to come up on the screen uh, that indicate victory of some kind. So we have crowns and trophies and uh, medals and all those kind of things. When we think of victory, we think of those kind of things. If you're going to make up a a symbol for uh, a new religion or a new uh, sports team or anything new, you would go with those kinds of thoughts. But Christians are different. Although we wear crosses around our necks, um, some of us might wear them on our ears um, or decorate them, uh, decorate our home with them, the cross belongs in these kinds of symbols. Because the cross was an implement of execution. Now this may shock some of you, I don't know. Um, I, I hope it doesn't offend people, but this is the truth. The cross was where Christ was crucified. And it's a form of execution. And yet, as Christians, we have the cross as our symbol of victory, when at the time it was a symbol of great defeat to many people. Why? Why is it we have the cross as a symbol of victory? Well, we're going to look at what happened on the cross, but there are many views as to why what happened on the cross happened, why Jesus was crucified. Some people think that uh, he died in order to be an example of how to endure persecution. There are people that believe that that's the reason. There are some who believe that the reason Jesus was crucified was in order that Satan could be bought off so we could go to heaven to be with God. But what's going on here and what we believe is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Now let me break that up so it doesn't sound so big. It's quite simple. Penal, penalty, substitutionary, someone instead of you, atonement, at one So the penalty was paid instead of you to make you one with God, to make you right with God. And that penalty was paid by Jesus. Jesus died on the cross in our place so we can be one with God, so we can be right with God. Sin stops us being in a relationship with God. It's a barrier. We cannot be in God's presence with sin. Jesus was sinless. He died in your place, taking your sin and giving you his righteousness. That's really what the atonement is. So that's the theology over. Let's look at what the passage says. In the passage, we see this substitution. We see the God who dies in our place. And I want us to see various reasons why Jesus here was crucified and how this makes that theology true. And the first thing we see is that Jesus was crucified as a substitute in verses 1 to 15. In verse 1, we read, Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, 
Jesus, before this, we saw last time, was going for a trial with the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, there was false testimonies uh, and all sorts of things, but in the end, they condemned him to death for blasphemy. But the Sanhedrin couldn't put Jesus to death. The Roman governor had to do that. And so in chapter 15, very early in the morning, this would have been about 6 a.m., it says the Sanhedrin made their plans. They couldn't go to Pilate and get Pilate to condemn him for, and crucify him for blasphemy. They made their plans. What are we going to say to Pilate? He wasn't going to crucify Jesus for a Jewish problem, because we know from history, which we won't go into, that him and uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate were not buddies. They didn't get on. That's why we see, we'll see Pilate trying to get out of this all the time. But if they announced Jesus was guilty of treason, well, Pilate wouldn't have much choice if it was found to be true. And so Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate. And we're not going to talk too much about Pontius Pilate uh, as a person. Um, there's, there's lots we could say. Um, but the main focus here is Jesus. We can often get distracted by going too much into the other characters, but Christ is the main focus I want to look at. But Pilate is just one of many uh, people, many parts that are used to bring us to the final outcome of Jesus' death on the cross. But what Pilate does is interesting because he's the one who enables Jesus to be shown as a substitute. So first of all, look at verse 2. It says, are you, this is Pilate asking, are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Now between verses 1 and 2, there are accusations that have been brought. One of which is that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And this was an accusation of treason rather than blasphemy. Because Caesar was to be the king of the Jews. In uh, chapter 14 and verse 61, we saw that the accusation was blasphemy. Here, it is treason. And Jesus acknowledges the accusation. He says, you have said so. In other words, you, Pilate, you've said this. Or, I have, no I have said nothing, and I am saying nothing. That's really what Jesus is saying here. So then we come to verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, if Jesus doesn't reply to these accusations, Pilate could prosecute because there's no defense. This is why Pilate was amazed. If Pilate could have an opportunity, as we'll see, to release Jesus, he would do so. If Jesus would make just a defense, say, oh, I didn't do it, Pilate could have let him go free. Jesus knows what is at stake. He will die without his defense. What is he doing? Why doesn't he just explain uh, something and say something to, to get out of this? Well, of course, we, we sort of seen before, Jesus goes to the cross willingly. Jesus goes to the cross knowing exactly what he's doing. Jesus goes to the cross to fulfill the will of his Father. And he's fulfilling scripture here. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
Jesus is going willingly. So he is silent. And we know from throughout this passage that Pilate wants to let Jesus go. He believed Jesus was innocent. And the silence did not change this. And the fact that he chose this man, we'll see now, Barabbas, also indicates that Pilate really wanted to let him go. Look at uh, the next few verses as we look at this character, uh, Barabbas. It says in verse 6, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. Barabbas was a zealot who wanted to create an independent Palestine by force. And he had taken part in an insurrection which was known as the uprising. And Pilate would have thought, if I put Barabbas up, who is guilty, who has done wrong, who has created unrest, who is uh, disturbing the peace against Jesus, the, the miracle worker, who not so long ago crowds were following, surely they would choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. That was the kind of things going through Pilate's mind. And Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest. Pilate was a politician. He knew, knows what it's like. He's acting out of self-interest too. It says it was out of self-interest that the Sanhedrin had put Jesus up. It wasn't because Jesus was guilty. It was because it was out of their own self-interest. And Pilate uh, takes one to no one. He knows what that is all about. So he put Barabbas up. And perhaps if the, the crowds had not been stirred up by uh, the chief priests, you know, Jesus may have been let go, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd, so they were calling for Barabbas. Pilate continues to try again. Look at verse 12. It says, What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate was a coward. Pilate was trying to save his own skin. He had Jesus crucified even though he was innocent. Notice three times in verses 9, 12 and 14, he asked them, Do you really want to crucify Jesus? And his name is forever known, really, for the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we'll come back to, uh, at the end, about about not being like Pilate in terms of following the crowd, but there's much more going on than just saying, don't be like Pilate. Look at Barabbas and his links to Jesus. And this is where I want to just focus a moment of our time. The name Barabbas means son of Abba. Barabbas means son of a father. Jesus is son 
of the Father, the Father in heaven. There's a link there, you can see. Barabbas tries to rule by taking lives in an insurrection. Jesus rules by laying down his life in a crucifixion. Barabbas tries to usurp the king over the people. Jesus is the king over the people. Barabbas was guilty and about to go free. Jesus was innocent and about to be condemned. Jesus was substituted for Barabbas. The just for the unjust. Mark makes it clear here that there is a substitution going on. Jesus for Barabbas. And brothers and sisters, this may upset some of you, but we are a church of Barabbases. We are a church of Barabbases. We are guilty of sin. We deserve punishment. Jesus has substituted himself in our place. We are sons of Adam. We try to rule, like Barabbas, our own lives in sin. We try to usurp God as king over us. And Jesus, innocent Jesus, who did no wrong, who was, did no sin, died in our place where we are guilty and we deserve to die and suffer for our sin. Pilate was responsible for what he did, but don't miss the substitute here. Don't miss Barabbas. And substitution is a good description. It's, it doesn't need any kind of illustration. It's straightforward, isn't it? A substitute is one who comes and takes the place of another. When we look at the cross, we should see Jesus there, but we should see Jesus instead of us. Jesus died as our substitute. We should be there. Jesus died as a substitute. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, you need to look at Jesus, and in a minute we'll see uh, the, the, the suffering that he endured and the punishment he took. And we need to look at Jesus, and we need to realise that either he is your substitute, or you stay, and you will suffer yourself for your sin. That's, the Bible is clear on this, and we'll, we'll see that as we go through. But if you're here today, and, and, and we've been singing... If you can sing salvation's song, then we ought to be thankful people that Jesus died in your place. And we should live lives of thanksgiving that Jesus died in our place. We can live such unthankful and ungrateful lives, can't we? Every time, every time I sin, I'm ungrateful and I'm unthankful and I'm unthoughtful about what Christ has done for me. Every time. And I sometimes, you know, I sin willfully sometimes. I go and I sin and I, I completely ignore what Jesus has done for me. And I'm sure you all struggle with the same thing, but Christ has died in your place. He's a, he a substitute. Let's live lives thankful for what Christ has done for us. But the, the contrast of, of Jesus and Barabbas is one of many ironies that take place in this passage. One of many ironies. So we, we, some other examples. We, we see Jesus innocent, but treated guilty. Jesus has power to come down from the cross, but he stays. 
He was crucified with rebels, but we read just the chapter before that he did not come to lead a rebellion. But the one Mark focuses on the most, where Mark draws our attention, if you care to notice, was that the real king of the Jews was crucified for being the king of the Jews. It's like being arrested for impersonating the person you are. It's like a police officer being arrested for dressing up as a police officer. That's what's going on here. Jesus is arrested for something that he was. Notice how often the phrase king appears in this passage. King of the Jews or or king. Six times. And it refers to Jesus. And each time it is a charge rather than a title. It's a charge rather than a title. And it's used to mock him relentlessly. So let's carry on with verse 16. And we'll read down uh, to verse 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Mark shows us that Jesus was crucified in shame. Jesus was crucified in shame. A company of soldiers was 600 men. So this was a big crowd surrounding Jesus, mocking him for being what he was, a king. They mockingly dressed him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns, dressing him as what he was, a king. They called out in mock honour, Hail! and fell to their knees, something you would say to what he was, a king. And they struck him with a staff, which Matthew tells us was given to him beforehand as a mock scepter. And they spat on him. And the verb here means that they spat and spat and spat again and again and again. And then the humiliation continues by this description of the way he couldn't even carry his own cross in verse 21. A man, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country And they forced him to carry the cross. Now at this point, uh, Jesus had been up all night. He had been flogged, which uh, when it says about being flogged here, uh, there was leather whips with bits of bone and metal attached to them and Jesus would have been whipped repeatedly with these whips. So his back would have been ripped to shreds. He had been beaten by the soldiers And all those things. And he was so weak, he couldn't even carry his own cross, as most criminals do. This was shame. This was shame. And in verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. He was brought to Golgotha, the Latin, uh, which is Calvary. So it's the same place. And it's called place of the skull either because of the amount of executions there or because of the way it looked. We don't know. But either way, 
This is not somewhere where the sinless Son of God deserves to be. And the concoction that they offered him was supposed to be a sedative. It seemed that the Romans, even in this instance, recognised how awful it was and had some kind of, of humanity. But Jesus didn't take it because he was to drink the wrath of his Father in full. Not with any deadened sense of pain. This was drinking God's wrath in full. And we'll see in in a moment, with Christ on the cross, uh, a glimpse of hell. And here it kind of begins, you know, there's, there's no sedative there either. And Jesus was not going there any other way than fully. Jesus was to suffer the way we deserve, nothing to deaden the pain and suffering. And then Mark says, and they crucified him. Have you ever noticed how the gospel writers seem to be so underwhelming in their description of the physical death of Jesus? There's no description of how crucifixion was, and it was awful. It was invented to make death painful and lingering. It could last for days. There was the nails that went through the hands, or the wrists, really, and the nails that went through the feet into the the beam. And people would have to, in order to breathe, would pull themselves up by their wounded hands or push themselves up by their nailed feet. It was really an awful and terrifying and terrible way to die. But the authors don't focus on this at all. Why? Well, I think in answering this question, we need to look at what the authors do focus on. And in this case, Mark, he focuses heavily on the irony of substitution in the first section with Barabbas. And here, in this, this section here, and what we'll see in a moment too, is the focus on the shame of the cross, on the shame Look at verses 24 to 32, because this shame uh, really continues. It says, uh, they, uh, verse 23, they off, uh, 24, sorry, they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So, so notice here that the shame. They, they gambled for his clothes. This was, was compensation for soldiers in the execution squad. They, they would get something for their um, dirty work, if you like. But it wasn't, it was humiliating for the crucified man. Notice the charge against him. Notice the charge, not the title, the charge. The king of the Jews As we said, it's repeated, king of the Jews, again and again. But it was uh, placed over their head because that's what the Romans would do to show what they were accused of. But of course, this was 
was shameful, wasn't it? Because that's what Jesus really was. He was crucified with rebels alongside him. Whereas Jesus said he wasn't leading a rebellion, but he was crucified with rebels. It says those who passed by hurled insults. This is, uh, by the way, a mild way of describing what they were doing. They were basically uh, doing the equivalent of dro- dropping F-bombs, swearing, blaspheming, saying the most awful things to Jesus. So they accused him, as well here, of saying something he didn't even say. In John, uh, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says he would destroy this temple, not the temple, this temple, meaning his body. And that was constantly thrown at Jesus as an accusation. And it say, they said, hi, you couldn't even save yourself. False accusations, but being used uh, to, to mock him. The chief priests and teachers of the law, who now seem to be getting their way, mock him, saying he couldn't even save himself. Well, we know full well that Jesus could have saved himself. He could have come down from the cross. He, didn't, he, he stayed there willingly. And even the rebels next to him, in their agony, you'd have, think, you'd have thought that they would have had other things on their mind, but they held insults at him. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel one of them was saved, but here uh, Mark focuses on that both of them, from both sides, hurled insults at Jesus. They should have revered him as king, but they reviled him. Mark focuses on the horrific humiliation and shame. Why? Why doesn't he focus more on the physical side. Well, I think that Jesus here doesn't just bear our sin, he also bears our shame. Now, we all know what it's like to be ashamed, don't we? I remember as a youngster, the day that I got caught by my mum smoking in the street. I remember that day because I was so ashamed. And all she did was wind the window down, call my name, wind it up and drove off. And I knew that that was enough because I had to go home and I had to face her for what I had done. And I felt shame. And that's right. Despite what the world may tell you, when you have sinned and you have done wrong, it is right that we feel shame. And for that shame, we go to Jesus on the cross and he bore it as our substitute. He took our shame upon himself so we could be forgiven. So we go to the cross with our shame and we repent of our sin. You might be told uh, that you shouldn't be ashamed for anything. We, we are ashamed of our sin and we go to Jesus and give it to him. After that, and we've repented, we don't need to feel ashamed anymore. We don't hold on to it, but we do need to allow that to drive us to Christ. But there is another type of shame, which for lack of a better term, I'm calling bad shame, which we shouldn't feel, but we do. This can be for something quite simple, like um, some, some people might have an embarrassing surname, for example, and they're ashamed of, of their name. But it can be something quite serious, like we can, people can be ashamed because of abuse that they've suffered, or because of, because of bullying, or the way they've been treated by somebody else. What do we do 
with that shame. Because that's the kind of shame we, we suffer when we, we haven't actually done anything wrong. Well, with that too, we can go to Jesus. Because Jesus, first of all, he knows and he understands your shame. He is unjustly here, ridiculed, mocked. He suffers at the hands of many people, from Pilate at the top to the crowds at the bottom. See how Jesus here deals not just with your sin, but with the impacts of sin on you. He bore your shame. He identifies with your shame in a way that no one else can. He knows what it is like. In your shame, go to the cross. Either for the shame we should feel, we go there and we take it, we ask for forgiveness and we leave it with Jesus and we we repent. But even that shame that we shouldn't feel, we go to Jesus with that too and we ask him to take it away. We ask him to, to bring comfort and we, 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 we go to him knowing that he understands. He understands. He has been there. He suffered shame. He was crucified in shame and he bore our shame. But as we come to the next part, we see here, on the cross, Jesus bearing our sin. And so we see Jesus here suffering the wrath of God. Look how this is shown in verses 33 to 37. Jesus was crucified as a sinner. Look at verse 33 to start with. It says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. So at this point, he'd been on the cross for three hours, suffering the shame of people. But at midday, this darkness descended. Why did this happen? Well, for a start, we know that it is not an eclipse of the sun. We can be assured of that when we trace back uh, the lunar calendar and all sorts of things I won't go into, but it's not an eclipse of the sun. What's going on here is judgment. In the Old Testament, we see many instances of darkness coming when God is judging. So, for example, uh, Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 22, is the plague of darkness upon Egypt. In fact, Amos chapter 8 and verse 9 prophesies that God judges sin by making the sun go down at noon. And in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13, Jesus describes hell as darkness. Darkness. So on the cross, in these hours... Jesus is suffering the judgment and the wrath of God. He was bearing what you and I deserve for our sin. The darkness came. Jesus was suffering God's wrath. And at three in the afternoon, as the darkness ends, Jesus makes this cry. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is the only time in Scripture Jesus calls out the words, or calls God, my God. Usually he uses the term Abba, meaning Father. But here, when the Father pours his wrath on Jesus, Jesus no longer uses that name. He uses the name, my God. And notice how he uses it twice. Normally in the Bible, using a name twice is a, is a sign of looking for or giving affection. So, for example, we read in the scriptures Jesus saying, Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon, or Saul, Saul. In Exodus, God says, Moses, Moses. But here, Jesus, where affection might be expected, receives none. He receives none. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 and verse 1, where David, a godly man, suffers injustice at the hands of the wicked. Jesus was forsaken by God because God cannot look at sin. There was no affection from his father because he could not even look upon a sin-bearing son. And with the darkness, we see God's wrath. But in the cry, we see God's absence from Jesus. Now, earlier in Mark, um, when I, I preached and we talked about hell, and we got a picture there, but I think this is a picture too. And I think this is a, a better one, actually, because there's darkness under God's wrath, and there's complete absence of any loving affection. Jesus was crucified as a sinner. And for those three hours, he suffered what many will suffer on their own for eternity. For eternity. And Jesus did that to bear your sin and my sin. But look at how the people misunderstood. Look at verses 35 to 37. It says, When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Uh, In the people's ear, his cry, Ellery, sounds a lot like Elijah. And some of you may be aware that Elijah in the Old Testament was uh, one of two people who went to heaven without actually dying. And people believed that Elijah would be one who would come and help in a time of need. So they thought Jesus was calling for Elijah to help him. But Elijah wouldn't come. Jesus died alone. In fact, if Jesus wanted to, he he could have called down any number of angels from heaven to come and take him away and get rid of the pain, but he stayed. He stayed forsaken, bearing our sin. And with a loud cry, it says, he breathed his last in verse 37. Now, the loud cry is interesting. It appears twice. A loud cry indicates power. 
power enough to be able to cry on the cross. And I I just want to emphasize again, Jesus was here willingly. He could have come down if he had so wished. He, He stayed there. He had the power of God. He is God. But he stayed there. He stayed on the cross to bear our sin. He stayed in the darkness. He stayed in the forsakenness, in the complete absence of his father. He stayed there when he had the power to come down. Jesus was crucified as a sinner. And I tell you again and again and again, either you look at this description of what happened to Christ and you thank God that he did that for you, or you go and you suffer this yourself. That is what the Bible tells us here. That is what happens. You suffer or you allow Jesus to take it for you. These aren't popular things to preach these days. They aren't popular things to say, but this is what the Bible tells us. And friends, we know people that are going there, so we have to tell them. We have to. Because there is a way, isn't there? Jesus has died. He has died for your sin. So, as we said at the beginning, you know, Paul writes, we urge people, be reconciled to God. And I ask, if any of you here have not given your life to Christ, if you have not taken your sin and placed it on Jesus, don't go without doing that. Give it to Jesus. Give your life to him. I urge you, be reconciled to God. And that's exactly what we see. This, this good news is that there is reconciliation. The, the, the next bit we see is that Jesus was crucified to make a way to God. Look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Interesting that that verse is there. He was crucified to make a way to God. And we see this here. The, the temple in Jerusalem was, was built with, with different layers The higher and deeper you went, the more holier it got, until you got to this place called the Holy of Holies. And in front of the Holy of Holies was a curtain, a curtain which was uh, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and thick. And it was a big sign that said, no entry, no one can come in here, this is where God dwells. And because the, the whole uh, sacrificial system, the whole of the, the temple was to show, because of sin, we are not worthy to be in the presence of God. It's a big, everything is a barrier. Everything is stop. But when Jesus died and he cried from the cross, the curtain, which was, you know, we don't, don't picture this as your shower curtain that just comes down when you just lean on it wrong. This was a big, thick curtain and it was ripped from top to bottom. And the, the illustration is obvious. The way to God is open. And friends, we go through this passage and there's some difficult things here, but don't miss this good news. The way to God is open. If I want to go and see the Prime Minister, I can't just walk up to 10 Downing Street and knock on the door and expect to go in and just have a cup of tea with David Cameron. If I go and do that, I would likely get shot. But the God of the universe has opened his door so that we can go in. 
we have access to God. An amazing gift. And I encourage you, friends, use it. Use that access to God. When we pray, we pray, don't we, in Jesus' name. Because when Jesus died, he makes the way open for God. Let us be people who regularly, or always, in fact, in the presence of God. Because Jesus died for this. He didn't just die so that we can get a ticket to heaven. He died so we can be in his presence forever. And that begins now. We are in the presence of God. What a gift. What a gift. So let's, let us use it. And finally, just in verse 39, Jesus was crucified, though he is God. Look at the, this final verse. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now from the beginning of the Gospel, from the first verse, Mark has been driving us to this very point. The first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Mark is driving us there, and here we have this centurion, this Gentile uh, man standing there confessing Jesus is the Son of God. And when he saw how he died, there was no other explanation. What did the centurion see? Well, he may have seen the whole lot. He may have been there from the arrest onwards. But if he was in front of the cross, he would have seen the meekness of Jesus. He would have seen the cries that Jesus gave from the cross. He would have saw the, the, the darkness descending upon the land. He would have seen the, the loud cry as Jesus breathed his last. And when he saw all of this, and he saw Jesus die, his only response could be, surely this is the Son of God. That day at Calvary, we see the Son of God. He is the one who dies. And as we close, I just want to ask, as you see this, as you see how he died, what is your response to him? The religious leaders, they thought they, they already knew the way to God. But they didn't. Being religious doesn't give us access to God. The soldiers here miss the point as they, Jesus is on the cross and they're just glibly casting lots for his clothing. We can be so absorbed in our own busyness and desires, we cannot even get the point of what Jesus has done. And then there's Pilate who succumbs to the pressure of the crowd wanting to do whatever makes him look best to others. And friends, we can suffer with that too, can't we? But as we see Jesus tonight, as we look at him on the cross and as we come to remember what he's done here at the table, let us say with the centurion, surely this is the Son of God. And respond with your allegiance. Let us read the charge above his head, not as a charge, but as a title. He is the King. He is your king. And I pray that you give your life to him. And if you're here as a believer, let us, let us be thankful, ever so thankful, that the way to God is open, that your sin and shame has been born on the cross, 
and we will be with God forever. And friends, let us, let us urge our families and our friends to be reconciled to God. Well, let's stand and sing before we come to the Lord's table. Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.